Thank you so much, Danielle, for that introduction. Very much in line with what Danielle was saying, what I have to offer you tonight is uh, it's not so much in the vein of answers. I think that would be arrogant for me to think that I, I have much of that to offer you. So the thoughts that I have tonight revolve around avoiding trite answers and pursuing better questions. So that's, what, that's how we'll uh, try to approach it. I think that uh, a lot of us, um, for those of us who are inclined to ask big questions when this happens, they revolve around phrases like senseless, words like why, and um, just you know, uh, concepts like evil. And uh, I think that there, some of the most common answers that maybe you used to give, maybe you still give, or maybe you hear from others, is um, everything happens for a reason. And uh, I hear this a lot, or, uh, and I you, you know, used to offer this to people who were going through tragedy. And um, uh, lately, or, or over the last couple of years, I've been thinking through you know, what actually motivates us to want to say that when something bad happens, to say that everything happens for a reason. Um, and uh, I've been trying to gather um, just, you know, like thinking through when people ask that question, why are they asking it? Where do they think they're getting that from in the Bible? And um, trying to dissect that. I think uh, part of the, the reason that that happens is because inherently we're people who uh, we want to make sense of the world. Um, I especially feel that way as a scientist. That's, that's what we do, and, and uh, you're afraid of things that you can't explain. And I think the world can be a very scary place if bad things happen and you just have no idea why that's going on. And with that, I think sometimes we will pull stories from the Bible that appear to fit nicely with a worldview in which every bad thing that happens happens for a reason. A key example that comes up in these uh, situations is the story of Joseph. So you all will remember with, uh, with Joseph, he uh, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And um, out of jealousy, his older siblings, uh, through, um, you know, they uh, left him for dead. And then uh, Joseph was stranded and he became a slave and um, worked his way up through the Egyptian system in Pharaoh's house and eventually became one of the highest ranking people in Pharaoh's empire. So uh, decades later in his life, he actually encounters his brothers again, and he encounters, uh, he is able eventually to um, uh, reunite with them and reconcile. And during that time, uh, there's a very famous uh, quote that he says when he's actually able to, to meet up with his brothers again and reflect on all of the horrible things that happened to him to get him to this point where he can be a high-ranking person in Pharaoh's empire and then also be of service to Israel at that time. This is when he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So this is an example of Joseph getting closure. He actually is able within his lifetime to say, I now know why all of these bad things happened to me in the past. So the situation here is that Israel is actually about to go through a very serious famine. And in order for God's people to be preserved, Joseph is able, because he's very well connected in Egypt, he's able to bring all of them over and to preserve them, save their lives in a time when Israel might have been 
um, might have ceased to exist. So he's able to say, now I know. I know why I had to go through Egypt. I know why I had to work my way up through that system. And I know why you, you left me for dead. And we love this story because it provides, it provides the character not only closure, but um, because he's able to recognize uh, what's going on, he, he does. He saves Israel and they, they prosper when, when they're in Egypt and they're able to successfully avoid the famine. So he gets both closure and he gets uh, you know, what we would think of, um, he recoups his losses and then some. That's how it goes. It's a beautiful story. And I think that we wish every time bad things happened that we could get that kind of closure. The challenge, though, with offering that as a paradigmatic example of what it's like to go through tragedy is many of us will not be able to make that level of sense of what happens to us within our lifetime. And many of us will not be able to recoup the losses of whatever it was that we sacrificed when we went through this tragedy. But it happens for him. And we wish, I think, you know, a lot of us wish that, hey, if I had to go through bad stuff, wouldn't it be great if God, t- God re- uh, revealed to me exactly why it happened and he made everything right um, before it was too late? I think a, a slightly less rosy picture, but one that still can be kind of rosy, depending on how you look at the overall story, can be Job. Uh, he is often a, a source of encouragement for Christians and Jews who go through tragedy um, and think about what it means to persevere in God during that time. Now, Job, um, when he goes through all of the suffering in his life, uh, you'll notice at the end of the story, there's this frame where um, he, uh, he, well, he spends a lot of the book venting that he has done nothing wrong and he doesn't understand why bad things are happening to him if he's been righteous. And a lot of that is him putting some blame on God for being unfair because he's a good person, but bad things are happening to him. So it must be, it must be that God is unfair and he's got to rethink things. And um, in the, at the very end of the book, God intervenes in the story and says, I've heard everybody. I've taken all accounts. Here's the thing. And then he goes on to say, um, you have no idea why things are going on. You shouldn't be making claims about, you know, why bad things are happening to you or, you know, that, uh, or anything like that. And he, you know, he goes on to say, were you there when I created everything? You're not, are, are you there when I make decisions on things like that? And of course the answer is no. And in the middle of this very long um, harangue that God has on Job. Uh, Job actually say, says in the middle, like, stop, I give up, I repent. You're right. I will, I should keep my mouth shut. That is what he says. So even though God doesn't tell him why he is suffering, we, as people who are reading the story, we know why, because we were privy to this debate between God and the adversary at the beginning of the book. Um, Job never finds that out. So he never gets that kind of closure. But he does get, um, he does recoup his losses and then some. So this is a, a key a turning point in that story. This is when, when Job is finally responding. He said, I have indeed spoken about things I didn't understand, wonders beyond my comprehension. And then uh, in the epilogue of the book, um, God says, or uh, the author says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. And when he had prayed for his friends, then the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And it goes on to repeat, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than in the beginning. This is another, uh, you know, even though Job didn't get 
he didn't get to understand why everything happened, he was able to alleviate suffering in his lifetime. And I think, too, we also, uh, you know, point to a passage like this to say, you know, maybe you won't know exactly why you happened, but I'm sure some good will come of this, because after all, everything happens for a reason. I think that, too, can be, uh, can be empty uh, for a lot of us who go through tragedy. There's a, an example that I think is getting closer to what a lot of us may feel like when we go through tragedy, and that's the case of John the Baptist. So John is a harbinger of the Jesus movement, commissioned by God to prepare everything for Jesus' ministry, finds himself in prison. That is not the way he anticipated it going when God was finally going to make his move with his people to restore them and put them on top and overthrow their oppressors uh, and redeem Israel. So he has been preaching the gospel, and he's been doing all of the things that Jesus does, and instead he gets stuck in prison. And during that time, it gives him uh, some time of serious doubt. He asks, uh, he begins asking questions about, well, um, maybe I got something wrong, because this is not how I pictured it going. So he asks this question that he sends over to some of his disciples, and they they carry that question over to Jesus. He says, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This is is how low it got for him. This is is what it means to say things are not making sense for him. This tragedy has not been a sense-making experience. In fact, it's caused him to, to relent on the one thing that you could have thought that he was sure on. His job was to prepare the way for Jesus, and now he doesn't even know if he did that right. And he doesn't get an answer to that question necessarily within his lifetime, because if you, if you follow the narrative in the Gospels, the next thing we know that happens to him is that he gets beheaded while he's in prison. And that's it. That's how it ends for him. And I think that this, is a, this would be a way of thinking through maybe how a lot of us would be thinking through the attacks in Paris, where something horrible happened, you don't understand why, you didn't get any answers, and then it's over. That's it. You get nothing more out of it. Um, you, you get nothing more out of it for the rest of the time you're on this planet. I think that uh, the reason that this is so concerning to us, the fact that our lives can be like John the Baptist in terms of making sense of the world, is that if bad things happen for no discernible reason, then we feel like God isn't really in control. So we come up with explanations. I think that um, it's a, a step better, I think, than, uh, than saying everything happens for a reason. Is saying, fine, I can't explain why everything happens, but I can say, in general, tragedies happen or evil happens because, and then you can offer um, whatever typical advice you may have given in this context. A very common one that I hear when things like the, the attacks in Paris happen, as they've happened before, is that... Um, it's just a, it's a sinful world that we live in, and humanity is sinful. People are sinful, and we do this to each other. And that is true. I think that, I think that can explain some. But to, to use that as your stock answer for why evil exists in the world, I think can ultimately be unsatisfying. A lot of suffering that we go through in life actually doesn't have to do with things that were done at the hands of other people. Earthquakes that wipe out possibly way more people on a, on a regular basis than, than we do killing each other. 
cancer. Um, you could even think of scenarios in which, um, you know, there are babies who are born with cancer who will spend their, all of their short lives going through nothing but suffering, and then that's it. And to say in those cases everything happens for a reason or shaking your head and saying that is, uh, that's the sinful world as a result of, hu- of humanity, I don't think can be, uh, can be very satisfying for many people in that situation. A lot of times, too, with that logic, we, uh, we think of Proverbs um, for, for building this worldview in which it's safer to say bad things happen to bad people or bad things happen because people are bad. So uh, the wisdom literature in, uh, for Israel has several different themes, some of them not always speaking with the same voice. One very optimistic voice within the wisdom literature comes from Proverbs, which is generally good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Of course, even the collectors of Proverbs knew that that wasn't true in every situation. But Proverbs overall tends to have a, a pretty rosy picture of why that's the case. But even so, we know that there are dissenting voices on that approach, even from within wisdom literature itself. Some of the darker ones come from reflections by Ecclesiastes and what we would call lament psalms. So Ecclesiastes at one point says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. That is dark, and it just hangs there. I have heard people out of a very well-meaning desire to not believe that it's possible that a wise person in Israel's history could say something like this, try to caveat these kinds of statements away. Maybe you have too, maybe you know people who do, maybe you've done this in the past. So I've heard that, for example, oh, Ecclesiastes is saying this as a hypothetical situation for this is what he would think if he inhabited a world in which God didn't exist. I've heard that as an explanation for why Ecclesiastes says some of the very dark things that he says. That premise never occurs in Ecclesiastes. It's not like at any point the writer is like, um, I don't believe God exists. In fact, the, the reason that he has so much trouble with the way the world is because God exists, he's trying to make sense of why do these things happen because God is there. Another way I've heard it is that, oh, these are, this, uh, this type of reflection for Ecclesiastes is a foil And later on in the book, he will say something that is so optimistic that you basically realize that he was only using this as a setup. Uh, That's also unfortunately not true. The balance of pessimistic and uh, optimistic things occur pretty evenly throughout Ecclesiastes. He goes back and forth. It's not clear that, uh, or it's not fair to say that by the end of the book, he walks away from all this saying, actually, I know, like, thank you for giving me a bunch of time to vent. Now I know God is fantastic, and there's a perfectly good explanation for why these bad things happen. It doesn't work that way. That's not how, how the book, the narrative of the book ends. It's really hard to let, let words like this stand on their own. And yet somehow God saw it to be okay to let the author of this book express those feelings, not jump in and say, but, you know, like this is, this is the kind of thing that I've heard. Like, so when we, uh, when we talk about lament psalms, uh, the, like we often say like, oh, there are lots of times when in, in the psalms, the psalmist will express this deep pain 
and sense of tragedy and sorrow. But at the end, they always say, but you know, nevertheless, I will be faithful to God. I know he will rescue me. I know he is a restorer. That's, that is often an answer, like a stock answer that's given when you talk about, wow, some of those psalms can get really, really dark. Not all of the psalms end that way. They're not all of them have this happy ending where you can vent everything and then at the end say, nevertheless, I will be, I will be faithful to God. A great example of this is Psalm 88. So this is just the end of the psalm. The, the 13 or 12 verses before it are just as bleak, uh, but uh, I'll capture just the end. He says, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The end. That's the end of that song. Now, if you think about Psalms as Israel's songbook, can you imagine if you modernize the context, saying like the worship leader saying, let's all stand up, let's sing. This is how it goes. And it's like, thank you so much. Let's all sit down. That's, that's how that song ends. And where I think I've, I've even read these passages before and People are even like, wait, that, that can't be the end of that psalm. You're, there's a, that's what I mean by, there's a but, there's a point where somebody says everything's going to be okay in the end, and the answer is no. There's a lesson that I learned from this, from passages like um, the more d- darker ones in Ecclesiastes and these lament psalms with no happy ending, is that apparently God was perfectly fine letting his people vent, and vent without caveat, vent without saying, Uh, you're going to praise me at the end, right? Things are going to be all right. He just lets them say it. He lets them speak what they speak. Not only did he let them say those things, but in his overall wisdom, he saw fit to include it in the canon so we can all sing it, we can all read it, we can all study it together. That's huge. To me, that's getting towards providing better answers to people when they suffer and when they are going through tragedy. Maybe, maybe, Listening and identifying with people who are suffering can be more helpful than providing answers like, that's just sinful humanity, or everything happens for a reason, you know? Hopefully you'll find out someday why this happened. There's another realization that I had in, in thinking about the story, the biblical overall story of why bad things happen, and that is, um, it's not even that you can say that evil originates with the sinfulness of humanity. In Genesis 3, the first evil thing to occur was not the sin of the first two humans. Uh, Matter-of-factly, Genesis 3 begins with a malicious snake. He's just there. He, that's, uh, he was described as being uh, more intelligent than all of the other animals. There's no origin story for that snake. From Genesis alone, you have no idea where he came from. When did he become evil? Why is he a snake? None of that is answered. And Eve and Adam uh, just engage with this snake, realizing that they're going to have to grapple and think for themselves about what the, what the snake is saying and choose good or evil for themselves. I think realizing that this snake occurs uh, without any kind of backstory um, makes me realize that maybe trying to answer the question of where does evil originate from or where did evil originate from is one that the Bible isn't necessarily interested in answering. 
and a good principle of reading the Bible is to get answers from the questions that the Bible itself is trying to ask. So maybe we end up finding very unsatisfying answers to why does suffering occur because we're going to the Bible with a question that it was less interested in. The Bible assumes a world in which evil exists, and it's more interested, I think, in something else about evil that we'll talk about in a bit. But for now, I just wanted to, to put it out there that possibly um, we, should, we should respect the fact that the author of Genesis wasn't interested in giving us that snake's backstory. In both Jewish, Christian, and Islamic traditions, there is lots of speculation about where that snake come, came from and where, where that backstory is. It in, like, sometimes it involves like Adam having had a first wife who is not on the books in Genesis. That wasn't Eve. It, it, gets, it gets out there. Um, but the Bible takes a much more restrained approach. That snake was there, and, uh, and it was craftier than all of the other animals that existed. I think that in light of that, we can uh, start moving towards better questions. This is what I think. I think that God is less interested in answering why does evil and suffering exist in the world and more interested in answering what is he doing about it. When John the Baptist asked, are you the one to come or should I look for another one? In his bleak despair, um, his, his disciples brought that question to Jesus. I don't know if John the Baptist ever got the answer to that question, but Jesus did provide him an answer. He said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. John is trying to make sense of his own tragedy, and Jesus offers him a picture of what God is doing in the world through him. I think that we can offer that response to people too, who are trying to make sense of their tragedy. God doesn't cause cancer. Rather, he's working towards a world in which there is no sickness or mourning or death. God doesn't operate using machine guns and grenades and suicide bombs. He's working towards a world in which those kinds of weapons are built into farming tools. And God doesn't kill 130 people in Paris. Those, that is what we do to each other. But God is working towards a world in which he could possibly raise every single one of those people who died. We've taken up this mission that God and Jesus have. God's enemies, death, chaos, sickness, darkness, violence, those are our enemies too. And we respond to evil the way Jesus did. We fight the way that he fought. Given that, that we want to fight the way that Jesus fought and we want to respond to evil the way that Jesus responded to evil too, not all responses to the Paris attacks are equal. This is what uh, French President Francois Hollande said. He said, we will be merciless towards the barbarians of ISIS. I understand why he would say that. In fact, that's not surprising. I think every leader of a kingdom of this world um, would say something like that or has said something like that when a tragedy like that happens. I actually, I tried to think about what would it look like if a leader of the world didn't give an answer like that. I don't know. I mean, it's, they, they're trying to respond to, uh, out of a deep sense of hurt, a deep sense of embarrassment even. A lot of times there's pride at, the, uh, at stake 
where a leader would think, how on earth could this have happened to my country or to our country? And there is this desire for retribution, which Alon has clearly said that that's what they're looking for. What would it look like if he hadn't responded that way? Or what does it look like when Jesus responds that way? So I think Jesus' response to, to the attacks would be what we've already talked about, things that he spent his entire ministry saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you, and what he said on the cross to his enemies, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I think that somebody may look at that and say, well, that's, that seems a little trite. Because this is a very complex foreign policy. There's a lot of issues at stake. You can't just be a country that doesn't respond when you're attacked like that. What would kind of message would it send if um, we didn't retaliate in kind, in proportion, when things like that happen to our nation? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that's too simplistic. Maybe not. The reason that I'm not sure that it's too simplistic is because I don't even know if we've given these a shot. If you've actually tried loving your enemies praying for those who persecute you and blessing those who curse you. Can anyone here say that they have prayed for ISIS, that they have wanted blessings to come upon ISIS after what they've done? I know that we pray for our own country's soldiers. We pray for things like um, them being safe when they're fighting, and for them to return home to their families, and for their families to not get torn up and devastated as a result of war. Can you imagine what it would look like to pray that for the soldiers of the other's country? What would that be like? Because when we pray that we want our soldiers to be safe and do well and come home to their families, what are we hoping is going to happen to the soldiers of our enemies? I don't know. Maybe we don't think about it that much. And maybe when we do, we let it go because it's very hard to reconcile those thoughts that we have with what Jesus says. I think that we're missing an opportunity. I think that, I think that uh, this could be uh, a big deal if Christians were known as the people who, in response to the Paris attacks, were taking the lead to genuinely pray for not only for the victims, but for the perpetrators as well. There's another way in which this gets challenging, and it feeds into the worldview that Hollande is speaking from. So in a world that is, appears to be increasingly marked with violence, you can imagine violence is the only way to respond. That's the only kind of message you can send. Danielle mentioned earlier that there's, you know, there can be a zeitgeist that occurs where people think that this is just what you'd expect. The world is becoming increasingly evil. Things get really bad. Then Jesus will return. Then he will really make things bad, but he'll clean everything up, and that's it. And then maybe in that process, we will escape this earth, and it'll all get destroyed, and then that's it. The end. We escape. I think that that is missing a, a huge point as well. Do we, uh, I think it, you know, and a lot of those times the way I've seen it justified is that people will say, well, you know, um, uh, why shouldn't Hollande respond that way? After all, when Jesus comes back, how is he going to treat his enemies? And then you cite 
passages from Revelation that say when Jesus returns, he'll be like a roaring lion, he'll have a sword, and he'll have blood on his clothes. That is, those are all images straight from Revelation. And on a very basic reading, I can see how you might think that what, what Revelation is saying, the end of the narrative of the Bible is saying, is that there will be a bloodbath until Jesus comes, and then there will really be a bloodbath, and then Jesus will make it, and that's how Jesus will make everything okay. Except, Revelation subverts every single one of those points that I just made. Uh, the way John describes the Jesus first appearing in Revelation in his vision is that he hears a roaring lion. But then when he turns around, he doesn't actually see a roaring lion. He sees a lamb. In particular, he sees a slain lamb. That's what he sees when he actually looks at the symbol that is Jesus in Revelation. And the sword that he carries off to battle, the sword is his tongue. The words that he speaks are the weapons that he has. He speaks truth. That's how he wins. And the blood that's on his clothes, that comes from a scene in Revelation 19, which is associated with the famous Armageddon battle scene. The blood on his clothes, Jesus has, before he even goes into battle. The way the narrative in Revelation works out, that's his own blood that he has shed for other people. And the way Revelation frames it is that Jesus will conquer by by being peaceful in those ways. He will conquer with the sword of his mouth. He will conquer by speaking truth. He will conquer by shedding his blood for his enemies. And the advice that Revelation gives its audience is you too, be faithful unto death. This is how you will conquer for the one who overcomes. This is how it will go. I think that if we could, if we really believe Jesus and we took him seriously when he says these kinds of things and we took his way of conquering evil seriously, I think things would be very different. And I think people wouldn't say things like loving your enemies is trite in response to some kind of, in, into, in response to a tragedy like this. That we can't just bless those who curse us or we can't just let things go when people wrong us. I don't know. I think we could. I think Jesus can do it and I think he did it. I think he can do it through us again. I think too we're presented with a really... Uh, with a special opportunity in America and for our brothers and sisters in Christ and in France and all over the, the Western world to show what it means to love the other in a, in a particular way in light of these attacks. That is taking on the perspective of the vast majority of Muslims who are not extremists like ISIS. That would be the vast majority of Muslims that you would meet in America. Almost everybody you, uh, almost every Muslim you have ever met, would be horrified when, uh, just as much as you you are, if not more, when they see tragedies like this happen. I was a Muslim uh, when 9/11 happened, so that was um, I was 16 years old at the time. That was that was uh, 14 years ago, and I remember going through this thing where. Um, I was very worried at the time about how people would be reacting to me as an American Muslim because of something that people did, people who I have absolutely no association with at all in any way, that I would try to repudiate as much as possible. But that doesn't, that doesn't change people from grouping lots of people, like grouping lots of the other together. There's a... There was a time recently, actually within the, the last few years, where when the Boston Marathon bombings happened, um, I remember Christine and I were sitting on the couch and we were watching the news roll and it was about a day later when, they, when um, reports were closing in on who they thought the perpetrators were. 
And as they were describing who they were before they showed a picture and gave names, Christine and I were saying to each other, please don't let it be a Muslim. Please don't let it be a Muslim. Please don't let it be a Muslim. And I learned uh, a year later, I was describing that story to a friend of mine who's African-American. And he said, really, you do that? Because when in their neighborhood, you know, when uh, a murder happens, they say the same thing. Please don't let it be a black guy. Please don't let it be a black guy. And we bonded over that. It's this experience of what is this going to mean for us when something like this happens? I'm not a Muslim anymore, but I still identify. I remember what it was like to feel like that, to feel like being the other in this country when my country is rallying around um, this desire to defend its own people and retaliate, thinking, I wonder what's going to happen to me. I still, to this day, wonder when, when things like that happen, what's going to happen to my relatives who are all Muslims? What's going to happen to my friends? What are they going to think? There is a, there's a lot of survey research on Muslims, both in America and abroad, that's showing that when tragedies like this happen, the, the vast majority of them are heightened and nervous because they feel like they will become the target of discrimination and they will become the, the target of terror in their own areas. Um, and it's, it is true in America that since 9-11, there's this, the ironic reality that um, Muslims in America have been victims of this kind of hate far more than, than Muslims have been perpetrators of these kinds of things since 9-11 happened. I think that we have an opportunity to really identify with Muslims in America who are finding themselves in a very difficult spot. And it's especially a lot of times it's Christians that they're particularly afraid of because of just perceptions that they have about American causes being associated with Christian causes and um, uh, animosity towards Muslims being driven by what they perceive as this American-Christian amalgamation that's very hard for them to differentiate. It's understandable why they would think that. I think that, uh, in particular, it's, uh, it's Christians who should be able to identify with them in a time like this. After all, I remember when I was a Muslim, what I didn't want to happen was that people who weren't familiar with my scriptures, the Quran, would take a few verses that appeared to be very violent, extrapolate an ethos for the entire scripture from that, impute that onto me and every believer who adheres to that faith. Does that sound familiar, that kind of fear? Of course it does. Who of all people would be willing to reach out, willing and able to reach out to a Muslim and say, I get it, I understand that fear. I totally understand why you would be in that situation. Here's the thing, I won't be like that. I want to understand where you're coming from. I want to understand your fears. I don't, want it to, I don't want you to live in this kind of fear, especially not a fear of Christians. I want to finish with a, um, a realization that I had when looking at the liturgical calendar um, a couple years ago. So you, I have the, the current liturgical calendar up for December. That is, um, this, this in particular is the Roman Catholic uh, liturgical calendar. So for those of you Protestants who are not familiar, uh, low church Protestants who are not familiar, the, uh, the, what this calendar does is uh, it provides a time that Christians globally can reflect together uh, and unite around certain events in the Bible spread out in a, in a chronological order. So for example, right now we're in the season of Advent or we're approaching Advent where um, uh, we are anticipating the birth of Jesus. And what happens from December to uh, Easter time is uh, Jesus's life, various events of it in chronological order, um, building up to Easter. And you reflect on different events in Jesus's life in that time. 
so you'll notice, you know, December 25th, that's there. That's Christmas. When I, when I first started, like, when I first came to that realization, like, oh, it actually chronologically maps out the, you know, the events in Jesus' life in order. You see a horrible tragedy that is the exact opposite of Christmas occurring just a couple days after. So that is December 28th, which is, I think, it's, what does it say? It's the Holy Innocents. It's called the Feast of the Holy Innocents. You call them martyrs. Um, do you all remember what, what that would be talking about? It would have to have been around shortly around the time that Jesus was born. That is the, um, it's, uh, the feast, it's called the, the Feast of the Holy Innocents because this was when Herod killed all of the babies who generally met baby Jesus' description in Bethlehem at that time. Here's how Matthew tells it. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. When Jesus entered the world, he entered in the thick of a genocide. This was Herod out to get him and willing to do whatever it took to stop him. As a closing thought, I have um, a statement from Bible scholar N.T. Wright, who discusses this in his commentary on Matthew in the, in the first couple chapters. And after this, we will uh, we'll close with prayer, and then we can do communion. So here's what N.T. Wright says. The gospel of Jesus the Messiah was born then in a land and at a time of trouble, tension, violence, and fear. Banish all thoughts of peaceful Christmas scenes. Before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. At the same time in this passage and several others, Matthew insists that we see in Jesus, even when things are at their darkest, the fulfillment of Scripture. This is how Israel's Redeemer was to appear. This is how God would set about liberating his people and bring justice to the whole world. No point arriving in comfort when the world is in misery. No point having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If he has to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where the pain is. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you've given us this space to be together. And we're so thankful that You've given us a chance to just talk about what is obviously on our minds. It has been a terrible week, both particularly here and abroad. And we are, we are grateful that we can come to you for wisdom and that you will listen and that you don't judge us when we express our frustrations and our senselessness and our good answers and bad answers and good questions and bad questions, that you're there and you listen and that you're doing something about it. God, you are great, and you are powerful, and that's why we can entrust you with dangerous things like praying for our enemies. God, right now, we want to pray for ISIS. Whatever it looks like for you to bless them or for us to bless them, we beg you, do it and empower us to do the same. Help us be creative like Jesus was in responding in nonviolent ways. Help us understand what it means to turn the other cheek in the 21st century. Help us understand what it means to walk a mile with our enemies. God, we know that vengeance is yours, and we know that the way that you want the world to operate is through subverting violence, and so we entrust that to you. 
We ask that you bless ISIS and you bless everyone who is a perpetrator of violence and that you bless us when we find ourselves in that sorrowful position of being perpetrators or perpetuators of violence as well. God, please be with all of the victims of all of the evil forces and darkness in this world. Please provide them comfort in a way that only you can. And Lord, as we reflect on, on these events and take communion together tonight, please help us love and appreciate and understand everything you did for us through Jesus and his resurrection. You put his body back together again after it entered the grave. We know that you can do the same with everyone who has died on this planet, and we know that you're rebuilding a world to come in which there is no death and no mourning. Please help us to take comfort in everything you provide. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.